The scripture reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 18, and we're beginning today at verse 11. I'm actually going to explain a bit about this for 10 seconds for the benefit of our visitors today before I read this. We've been working through the book of Joshua, which tells the historic events surrounding the Israelites' entry, chapters 1 to 4, and conquest, chapters 5 to about 11, and then allocation of the land of Canaan after their wandering in the wilderness. We're in the part about the allocation of different parts of the land to the different tribes. And there's a great emphasis on every tribe receiving their inheritance. And so now we come to chapter 18, verse 11, and we have the description of the allotment for Benjamin, which might strain your conviction that all Scripture is useful. Well, let's hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches, shall we? Verse 11. The lot for the tribe of the people of Benjamin, according to its clans, came up, and the territory allotted to it fell between the people of Judah and the people of Joseph. On the north side, their boundary began at the Jordan. Then the boundary goes up to the shoulder north of Jericho and then up through the hill country westwards and it ends at the wilderness of Beth-Avon. From there, the boundary passes along southwards in the direction of Luz to the shoulder of Luz, that is, Bethel. And then the boundary goes down to ataroth Adar on the mountain that lies south of lower Beth-Horon. Then the boundary goes in another direction, turning on the westward side, southward from the mountain that lies to the south, opposite Beth Horon, and it ends at Kiriath Baal, that is, Kiriath Jearim, a city belonging to the people of Judah. This forms the western side. And the southern side begins at the outskirts of Kiriath Jearim, and the boundary goes from there to Ephron and to the spring of the waters of Nephtoah. Then the boundary goes down to the border of the mountain that overlooks the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is at the north end of the valley of Rephaim. And it then goes down the valley of Hinnom, south of the shoulder of the Jebusites, and downwards to Enrogel. Then it bends in a northerly direction, going on to En Shemesh, and from there it goes to Gelioth, which is opposite the ascent of Adumim. Then it goes down to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben, and passing on to the north of the shoulder of Beth Arabah, it goes down to the Arabah. Then the boundary passes on to the north of the shoulder of Beth Hogla, and the boundary ends at the northern bay of the Salt Sea, at the southern end of the Jordan. This is the southern border. The Jordan forms its boundary on the eastern side. This is the inheritance of the people of Benjamin, according to their clans, boundary by boundary, all around. Now, the cities of the tribe of the people of Benjamin, according to their clans, were Jericho, Beth Hogla, Emek, Keziz, Beth Arabah, Zemaraim, Bethel, Avim, Parah, Ophrah, Shephar, Ammoni, Ophni, Giba, 12 cities with their villages. Gibeon, Rama, Beeroth, Mispeh, Chephira, Moza, Rechem, Irpil, Tarala, Zela, Halef, Jebus, that is Jerusalem, Gibeah, and Kiriath Jerim, 14 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the people of Benjamin according to its clans. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious God, who by your Spirit, spoke these words intending our upbuilding, our edification, our Christ-likeness, our growth in faithfulness and maturity, and whatever challenges to renewed repentance and faithfulness are necessary for us today, please speak again by that same Spirit that we may experience all those things which you have in store for us, those good things which we need to hear this day, and so make us more like our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
you may be seated. And you may find it helpful at some point to grab a hold of this insert in your orders of worship. I'll come to it shortly. It's got a map of the inheritance of the 12 tribes of Israel on one side. Today, I would like to talk to you about the subject of contentment. Contentment. By contentment, I mean the joyful and grateful acceptance of painful circumstances when those circumstances are out of your control and you don't have some kind of moral obligation to fix them. Bad things that happen, in theological terms, natural evils. And I want to introduce this subject by asking you to consider the reading we've just had from Joshua 18, and in particular to consider the the situation that we were in a couple of weeks ago when we read from the first half of this chapter Uh, I'll just recap it briefly for the sake of those who are visiting today and who weren't with us then. Those of you who were here will recall that two weeks ago, chapter 18, verse 1, the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. And the land lay subdued before them, and therefore it's likely, it seems, that it was a fairly festal atmosphere. Everyone's excited because they see the whole land, and not literally every city, as we'll see in later chapters, but much of it, vast majority of it, all ready for them to take as their inheritance. And in verses 3 and 4, Joshua issues a stern challenge. Verse 3, he said to the people of Israel, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? There it is. Go and take it. It is for you to live out and work out the salvation that the Lord your God has granted you. Go and take it. And so they sent three men from each of the seven remaining tribes who hadn't yet received their inheritance, three men from each of those tribes to basically go and draw a map, figure out, it says literally, write the land, write the land down or write on the land, probably write the land, it's draw a map or something. And those 28 men, so 20 men, 21 men, went out and came back in verse 8, Uh, Verse 8, the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went out to write the description of the land, saying, go up and down the land and write a description and return to me. And I want to put you in the place, if you don't mind, of the people left behind. They've gone out on this, well, exciting voyage of discovery, Lewis and Clark expedition of ancient Israel to try and find out what's there. And as you're left behind, as you're left waiting, What's the one big question that will be on your mind? I suggest to you that among the many things that you'd have been thinking of is the obvious one. Like, what are we going to get? They've gone out to figure out which tribe is going to get which patch of Canaan. Well, here's the Asherites, and here's the Benjaminites, and here's the Issacharites, and they're all there, and they're wondering where we're going to end up. And this is a critical question. This is not just a kind of uh, trivial aspect of uh, ancient, late Bronze Age political geography. The land is the place within which the people of Israel will experience the blessing of God. There is a tremendous emphasis. Remember the daughters of Zelophehad, a couple of chapters back? Everybody must get their inheritance because everybody must have access to this land, this blessed, fruitful land that the Lord is going to give them because the Lord is going to be there. This is the place within which, that physical space within which you experience the Lord's blessing. It's one of the big differences between the new covenant and the older covenants is that that geographical significance of Israel no longer pertains. And of course, there are practical things as well. It's like, I mean, you've got to live there. This is an ancient agricultural economy, and so you're going to depend on farming and natural resources and water and wood and so on. 
and all the things that you need to build your homes and to survive. If you've got none of that, I don't know how you're going to survive in ancient Bronze Age Israel. So verse 9, the critical moment comes. The men went and they passed up and down the land and they come back. And chapter, chapter 11, verse 10, Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord, apparently trying to figure out what the Lord would have as allocations to the different people. In second half of verse 10, the Lord apportioned the land to the people of Israel each to each his portion. Now, as they describe the land to Joshua, as they came back and they told of what they saw, they revealed, these 21 men, some glorious possibilities. Just take a look at your map and I'll tell you what I have in mind. What they would have learned if they didn't know it already, for the first time. There are some portions of the land that have already been allocated. So Judah in the south, that big band across here, Manasseh. You remember greedy old Manasseh from a couple of chapters back? That massive slab of Canaan. And then Gad and Reuben on the um, east side of the Jordan. Those have already been allocated. But there is this vast expanse in the north. All these places, you've got to imagine the map with Asher and Naphtali and Zebulun and Issachar not on there. This is the big prize. This is 2,200 and something square miles of beautiful Canaanite farmland and hillside. Look at what's up there. There's Lake Galilee is up there. That's a little round thing that, that just next to Hamath. All the beautiful fresh water teeming with fish and surrounded by green rolling hills. If you've ever been to Israel, beautiful sight of Lake Galilee. Just to the east of the river that runs into Lake Galilee at the north, you have about 1,000, 1,200 acres of beautiful farmland. It's rich, dark, deep soil. It's now called the Hula Valley. Hundreds of thousands of acres. It's still used as farmland to this day. And then as you go further west into the territory now described as Asher, well, Asher didn't know they were going to get, the, the land rises slowly to low hills, like less than 1,000 feet, most of them, uh, grazing for sheep and oxen and goats and cattle. Beautiful place. And you'd rem- as your mind dwelled on these possibilities, you'd remember the Lord's promise of wells you didn't dig and fig trees and olive groves and vineyards you didn't plant, and surely the Lord is good to Israel. Maybe that's where we're going to end up. And then, as you mulled on that possibility, one other nagging thought would trouble the back of your mind. Because tucked away, down in south-central Canaan, is another altogether less glamorous possibility. Just down in the, the north edge of the Dead Sea, just a bit to the north of that, tucked away between Judah and Ephraim is a narrow strip of land. It's barely 10 miles wide at its widest point from north to, north to south. Most of it's about 5 miles wide. 80% of it is arid, rocky desert. It's quite low-lying, so the, the soil contaminated with salts and other minerals. As you head west, you gain altitude much more quickly than in the north. The hills here are 2,500 feet high, even higher, some of them. There's steep, rocky slopes with barren ravines, and there are a handful of these little towns and villages kind of clinging to the rocky, dusty hillsides. You have limited access to water. There are hills in some of those places. There's one big, uh, there are springs, sorry, in some of those places. There's one big spring in Jericho. Jericho has a huge spring, pumps out uh, hundreds hundreds of thousands of gallons of water a month, uh, even today. Um, but there's nowhere near enough water to irrigate the mountainside. You can't really pump water uphill from Jericho to, 
clean up the dusty mess. And so you'd be looking at that little strip of nothing much really, the rump of Israel. <laughs> not really good for farming, not really good for flocks, not really good for anything. And so it's like, I don't know, children, if you've ever been at a, a birthday party, and when um, you know, you're going to celebrate the birthday of one of your friends and, and her mum is chopping up the birthday cake. You ever been in that sort of situation and she's chopping up the cake and she's miscounted the number of children? So she's there chopping the cake and you think she's chopping it into 10 slices. I'm pretty sure there were 11 children here. And you're looking around and everyone sort of, they all realise and then she realises and as she gets sort of three quarters of the way through cutting the cake, she starts to, oh dear. And so she cuts some slightly smaller slices, hoping that nobody will notice. And the last slice that gets cut is not really a slice, it's more of a kind of squidge. And you're all kind of looking at each other thinking, you know, it hasn't even got a cherry on top of it. I wonder who's going to get that. That's the feelings that would have been flooding the hearts. So who's going to get the narrow strip of barren wasteland? And the remaining seven tribes are about to discover chapter 18, verse 11. And you suddenly start to see why this text that I read for you, all those crazy names, why it might, might be so significant. Just look with me, verse 11. The lot for the tribe of the people of Benjamin, according to its clans, came up. <sighs> I wonder what it's going to be. And the territory allotted to it was up in the north. Ah, oh, no. Fell between the people of Judah and the people of Joseph. That's Ephraim and Manasseh. It's Benjamin. Benjamin gets the strip of wasteland. Can you see? And you've already got it marked on your map. Mrs. Loki was very kind in printing again another insert so you could see the areas I'm talking about. And in verses 12 all the way through to verse 18, you've got this long, long description of that border. A very long description of a really quite short border. And it sort of starts just north of Jericho at the Jordan and goes anti-clockwise round, um, marking every grimy pothole, every unimpressive grove of trees, every nondescript town clinging to those rocky, dusty hillsides that you think, thanks very much, why couldn't Asher have got that? And so this provides us an opportunity to consider the biblical theme of contentment. Because Benjamin has just received the news that from now, 1300 and something BC, until the coming of the Messiah, they are going to be living in the wasteland. They're going to be crammed into the dusty, rocky Nowheresville, sort of snookled in between Judah and Ephraim. And it's an opportunity to consider the biblical theme of contentment because it raises within our minds the question, how do we feel about analogous circumstances? Circumstances which, remember, it's not that there's a problem and you have some moral obligation to fix it. There's a problem and you don't have the capacity to fix it. These are suboptimal circumstances. It's the aspects of your life that you wouldn't have chosen, the things that you can't do anything about, but in the Lord's providence, here you are. What is it about your health, for example, where you struggle to be content? What is it about your relationships, or perhaps your lack of one particular relationship, or your financial situation, or the work you have, or the boss that you have, or your co-workers, or the train wreck that happened last time you launched a company and it lasted six months before it went down, nearly took your house down with it. What is it about the general frustration of life 
that we find it hard to be content with. Can you? I'm not asking you to tell me. I'm asking you to put a mental finger on a couple of things that are for you what this inheritance was for Benjamin. Really, everyone else I know is better off in this respect than me. What is it that the Lord is going to be speaking to you today about concerning contentment? And what we're going to see is how Benjamin responded and what we might learn and how we might see the Lord's hand at work. So let me just make, I've got two very straightforward points really to make. The first thing is very easy and very obvious. The Benjaminites were content with their inheritance. It might not seem to be screaming at you from this text, but let me show you, I think it is, very clearly. As they contemplated the blessing from the Lord, they contemplated their material provision for the future, and they looked at its dryness and barrenness. They were nonetheless content with what God had given them. Just look closely. I'll show you where, where I'm seeing this. Look at verse 11 again. You've got this long description. Do you remember? I won't read it all again, don't worry. I don't want to risk getting those names wrong. Long, long description. All the way from verse 11, all the way down to verse 28. All those different borders, all those different cities. Now, here's the key question. How did Benjamin respond to this news? Can you see? Just look. Look closely. Where do you find their response to this news? Can you see it? I can't. (laughs) They make no response at all. They have this long list of cities and a long list of places, a long list of borders, and there's no conversation, there's no response, just silence. And it's absolutely astonishing. The reason it's astonishing is because we already know how tribes of Israel tend to respond when they feel hard done by. How do we know that? Because you look back at chapter 17. Who remembers the, the greedy Manasseh? And how they ended up with that massive slab of land. Millions of acres of land over the top top of uh, where Ephraim and Gad is. How did they end up with that? Well, it's very simple. Chapter 17, verse 14. The people of Joseph, which is Ephraim and Manasseh, they came to Joshua saying, why have you only given us one portion? Why have we only got one lot of land? The Lord has blessed us all along. I'm a numerous people. Look how many we are. Verse 16. The hill country isn't enough for us. And we don't want the place in the plain. It's too difficult. Give us somewhere nice and easy and beautiful and, and hilly where we can graze our crops and make loads of money from all the tertiary industries in the cities. Remember the 60 cities over on Transjordan in the east? We know how disgruntled Israelites respond when they feel hard done by because Manasseh showed us. And actually, if you remember, I showed you um, the, the structure of this whole section from chapter 11 or 12 all the way through to the end. Remember, it's a chiasm told you, with chapter, 11, chapter 18, verse 1 to 10 is at the center of it, which means that either side of the central part of the chiasm is the inheritance for the tribes who were descended from Jacob through Rachel. So you've got, in the first half, the tribes descended from Jacob through Rachel, that's Joseph, because the first son through Rachel, Ephraim and Manasseh. The tribes through Rachel received their inheritance and they complained. So the second half of the chiasm, what are you expecting? You're expecting the same thing. It's shouting and screaming at you. The Benjaminites received this piddling little strip of nothing, mostly dust and rock. What are you expecting? The, the tribe descended from Rachel didn't complain. They said nothing at all. 
Here, hands up if you've ever read that um, Sherlock Holmes mystery, Silver Blaze. Yeah, so, you, know, you know who Sherlock Holmes is? English guy, detective. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should have a film evening. So Silver Blaze is the, is the name of a racehorse. And the, the great detective Sherlock Holmes is um, uh, supposed to solve the mystery of who's stolen this racehorse, this beautiful racehorse, Silver Blaze. And the clue to the mystery is in the guard dog. You remember this at the stables? where the, 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 um, the horse was kept, the guard dog did not bark. Remember that? And he interviews all these witnesses, and he notices that none of them mentioned that the guard dog barking. And the guard dog always barks whenever anybody who he doesn't know comes near. So the key to the mystery is what didn't happen. The dog that did not bark. What didn't happen discloses, well, the guy who stole the racehorse and I think actually murdered the trainer, wasn't it? I forget. Um, must have been somebody known to the guard dog, which rather narrows down the field of suspects. And Benjamin is the tribe that did not complain. You are expecting the same response we got last time from a Josephite, this time from a Benjaminite, same mother same complaining except no. They're just the tribe that did not complain. And it's interesting, when you look at the details, it's all the more striking. You look later in chapter 21, all the tribes are called to give cities to the Levites. Remember this, because the Levites didn't have any land of their own. They, were, they lived scattered around the people of Israel. They received the sacrifices and the ministry to the Lord in the, in the sanctuary as their inheritance, but they needed to live somewhere. So basically all the tribes gave them uh, cities in their own region. Now what are you expecting to happen? Well, you're expecting Manasseh and Judah to carry the bulk of the load, right? I mean, we've only, they've got so much space, they've got cities coming out of their ears. But actually, when you look in chapter 21, you discover that 48 cities in total were given to the Levites. On average, four per tribe. How many did Benjamin give? Four like the, the lady who went into the temple, you know, th this woman out of her poverty. Or I always think of it in relation to, in 2 Corinthians 8, with the, um, uh, the people of uh, Macedonia, who Paul commends, Paul the Apostle commends, out of their extreme poverty, they gave so generously. As an example to the wealthy Corinthians, we're going to give four cities, just like everybody else. It's even more striking still, when you consider the, tr the size of the, distant, the different tribes, just um, flick back with me to Numbers chapter 26. If ever you're puzzled by something in the Bible, check out the book of Numbers because you'll find the answer's probably there because if you're puzzled by it, it's because it's in a book you haven't read very much, right? Like the book of Numbers. Now, in Numbers 26, um, what you find is that there's a second census of all the Israelites. At the, this one is at the end of their 40-year wandering in the desert. And at the end of their the wandering through the desert, they're about to enter the promised land. And Numbers 26, verse 54, Moses is um, receiving instructions from the Lord about the inheritances to be given to different tribes. And he says, verse 54, to a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance. To a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Yeah, that's, that's how the land is supposed to be divided up. And if you look back through the previous chapter, which I won't read to you, because it's like, if you thought Joshua 18 was repetitive, well, you want to check out Numbers 26. Um, you've got all the numbers of the people in each of the tribes. Now, look at the numbers, verse 41. I won't read it all, but these are the sons of Benjamin according to their clans. And those listed were 45,600. Now, if you rank 
Israelite tribes in order of size, with the biggest at the top, Benjamin comes seventh in the list. They're about halfway. They're about average. You'd expect them to get about an average inheritance. In fact, they just beat, only just beat, the tribe of Naphtali. Verse 50. These are the clans of Naphtali, according to their clans. Those listed were 45,400. It's very interesting. The two tribes that are closest together in size are Benjamin, eighth place, sorry, seventh place, uh, 45,600, and then eighth place below them, Naphtali, just 200 fewer. So just think, what's going to happen? You're there, Naphtali's over here, Benjamin's over there, Asher's over there, Issachar's over there. They're all waiting to discover what they're going to be given, and they've been told that you should get what's in proportion to your size. And so the Benjaminites are all sitting there thinking, right, where's Naphtali? Right, how much is he going to get? Because if he gets one square inch more than me, there's going to be trouble, right? Because you know that you ought to get just a teensy, teensy bit more than them. And it's just really interesting. That's the temptation, isn't it? To we, we compare ourselves to people who are not miles away from us, but kind of close to us. Naphtali and Benjamin were this close, and Naphtali should get a tiny bit less, and Benjamin a tiny bit more. Now look at your map again. Where's Naphtali? Are you kidding me? They've got the entire Hula Valley. They're the only tribe with access to the Sea of Galilee. They're about five times the size of Benjamin. It is the rich, deep, dark soil of the Hula Valley, which even today is used for grazing and and for crops. They're just like us. He's just like me. And he's got so much more. Like, that's just, like, so unfair. I was thinking about this because... It it highlights the connection between contentment and jealousy. Contentment and jealousy. Just think about that for a second. Answer me honestly. Like, how many of you are actually jealous of, um, I don't know, um, Mark Zuckerberg? Okay. So, beginning of the year, he's worth 125 billion. Now he's only worth a mere 55 billion. (laughs) Poor guy. I don't know how he survives. I I, I don't know about you. I mean, he's 30 something. all you guys in your 30s, are you actually jealous of Mark Zuckerberg? Like, I'm, I'm not in my 30s anymore, but I'm not, I don't really look at him and think, oh, I wish I had that. Tell you what I look at, or what I might be tempted to look at, it's the pastor who's born about the same time as me, but he's just a pastor of a church that's like twice as big. And he's got like this much more salary. That's a temptation, isn't it? Because it's like he's just like me. It's the guy at your company who he joined like six months after you and he's one year younger than you and he got the promotion. It's like you, you school students, yes. You, some of you, you, you're about to go back to school, you've had midterm break. How many of you are jealous of Suborno Isaac Bari? Like, who's he? <laughs> he's the seven-year-old who was awarded a professorship at Mumbai University. Very smart kid. How many of you are jealous of Subarno Isaac Bari? Nobody. I bet nobody. You're like not thinking, I wish I was that kind of child prodigy. But I bet there are quite a lot of you who just wish that you could get your homework done 10% faster like your sister can. Isn't that right? It's like, you're not yet jealous of the, the chief fire marshal or the most senior police officer in the whole of America if you're a fireman or a police officer. But tell you what, you'd be jealous of the guy who joined the same time as you did and he gets promoted first. Because jealousy 
wields its sharp arrows in relation to people close to us who get more. Naphtali and Benjamin. If anything, I should get about, I calculated it, it's like 4.7 acres more than them. It's just so unfair. It's just so unfair. And so for Benjamin just to say, even as the whole of Joshua chapter 18, go back to Joshua 18 again, the whole of chapter 19 is read out, all of the other inheritances, and they, they see themselves being shunted to the bottom of the pile. I'll tell you a story about my own experience of this. When Nicole and I were first married, we lived in a, a town in Berkshire, just west of London, called Slough. I've, I've told some of you this story before. Slough is not a particularly glamorous place. We went to Slough Baptist Church, where there were lots and lots of people who were really quite poorly off. And uh, we'd have 30-something different nationalities in church on Sunday, many of them refugees from very poor countries. And I was a PhD student. Nicole just started work. And so we had kind of one salary plus the, the grant that I had. And we, were, we probably had more disposable income than 95% of the, pop, the congregation. And then we moved from there to southwest London, to Wimbledon. Wimbledon's famous because tennis, remember? Yeah. Um, very, very beautiful place. And there I started my first job ever at a church. I was like a pastoral intern. And there I met men my own age, 26, 27, who were pulling down 80, 90, 100 and something thousand pounds. And this is like year 2000 pounds in consulting and in banking in the city of London. So I, for the first time in my life, I felt the necessity to resist envy. Not because I had any less, I actually had more, but I didn't have as much as them. Can you see how contentment becomes most difficult when you realize that oh, there's somebody like me, except they got more than me? And Benjamin's silence, therefore, is screaming at us. The weird thing, you know, it's not, it's not even obvious how the land allocations were made. In, in, New, in Numbers 26, of course, it, it says you're supposed to allocate these portions of land. Um, but then in Joshua 18, they're done by casting lots. And it's very strange. I haven't been able to figure this out. It looks like a really obvious dissonance in the narrative because is it God who decides through the lots or is it Israel who decides through somebody decide? And if, if it's not Israel who decides, what's Numbers 26 about telling you who to allocate the land to? So it seems very weird. And, and then I realized, oh, hold on, this, the effect that this would have emotionally on the people of Benjamin you get allocated this tiny little patch of dusty Canaan. And what's the temptation? It's like, well, who, who did this? Who? Joshua, did he? Was this, was this you? Or was it just the Lord? And I, I don't know. I honestly don't know how the land... Don't ask me, please, later. I've no, I don't know how the land allocations were made. And I think that uncertainty is deliberately being communicated to us. Because isn't that just how you feel when you find yourself in that situation where he got promoted and I didn't. And why? Like, why? Was it something I did? Was it something he did? Was it something they did? Or was it just the Lord's providence? And the answer is yes. I mean, it's, it's probably all those things, isn't it? And one of the keys to contentment, actually, is recognition of the Lord's providence. Remember Job? 
his life totally torn apart. You know, he's a wealthy man, a righteous man, lovely family, all this land and all everything he needs, and then his life is torn apart by a series of calamities, raiders from the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans and fire from heaven and the wind that smashes everything to pieces and all his family's dead and his, he's got his wife left who's just complaining and like, great. And he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I, I don't know who did it. Sabaeans, Chaldeans, that guy at work. Just your circumstances, maybe something you did. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's another key to contentment, of course. <laughs> it's um, just doing some sort of spiritual mathematics. Consider the size of your inheritance for a moment, if you would. How large is your inheritance? Well, when Moses was considering the size of the inheritance that could have been his as the prince of Egypt, he considered all that as, what does it say, fleeting, quote Hebrews 11, he considered reproach for the sake of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward, which he didn't even receive in Canaan. And so if we were to tell him about every spiritual blessing that ours in Christ Jesus, and then the Benjaminites are there looking at us like, really, you have, you have so little to complain about don't we? We have so little to complain about. There was a famous Benjaminite who realized this, of course, Paul the Apostle. Who was a Benjaminite? He, uh, Philippians 13, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I consider it a heap of steaming dung, as none of our Bible translations have the courage to say. You can't really blame them, can you? That I may gain Christ. So when we're sort of looking at the, the map here, we're like, well, where's our inheritance, this? Well, uh, Romans 4, it, in Christ came the promise that we should inherit the earth. All things in Christ, because he is the heir of all things, and we're one with him. And so here we sit, the most wealthy Christians who've ever walked the earth, and we complain, and we lack contentment. And our forefathers in the faith, our poverty-stricken forefathers in the faith sang, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Because they understood contentment. At least those Benjaminites did. Let me give you just a couple of more thoughts as we... Well, actually, I've got a few more things I want to say. You're not, you're not hungry, are you? Great. <laughs> um, hidden... You'll like this, seriously. This will, be, this will encourage you. Because the first half is like a bit of a beat-up, right? This will encourage you. Hidden in the heritage which looked so barren were wonderful manifestations of God's kindness to Benjamin. Let me show you a few. The description of that border, just look at it again. I mean, it is the shortest border on your map... And it is the longest description of any border of any of the tribes. What's going on? If you look at, you can kind of gain an, uh, a sense of how detailed the descriptions are by comparing the length of the border with the length of its description in the book of Joshua. I've got to tell you, the description of the, of the border of Benjamin is somewhere between 5 and 15 times more detailed than the description of any other tribe. Why? 
Why describe in such detail this puny little scrap of nothingness? Ah, you've got to think. So you've got to think. Why would the Lord describe it in such detail? Illustration. Um, close your eyes. No, you don't need to close your eyes because you can't see him. Um, describe my son for me. No. Quite tall. Sounds English. Looks a bit like his dad. Right? Sorry, Ben. Now, you new mums, you've had a baby like two weeks or four days or something. Close your eyes and describe your child. Oh, so she's got blue eyes, but they're not just blue, they've got little flecks of green. And when she's feeding, she, she makes this sort of <laughs> snuffling noise, which is so cute, and her little button nose and her little ears, and there's this little wisp of hair that curls around the back of her ear, even though she's only like tiny. And you could go on and on and on. If I asked you to describe little Gracie, I mean, we'd get like reams of description. And I'd be like, well, she's grown since I last saw her, and she's very sweet, and she's a lovely little godly five-year-old. That's the best I can do, sorry. What color's her hair? Um, brown-ish, I think. You know? In other words, the things that you prize, the things that you love, you can describe in glorious detail, can you not? What's the Lord showing us? This little dusty rump given to the last son, the baby son. Let me describe it to you in all its glorious detail because you're my son. You're my. Ben means son. Benjamin means son of the right hand, privileged son. And so we come back to our inheritance again, don't we? That's, that's how the Lord sees you. you, you I asked you to call to your mind uh, 33 minutes ago. I'm getting to the end. It's okay. Um, those things about which you struggle with contentment, yes? And the Lord describes that in a way which places it in a context where you are his prized, beloved little boy, young man, young lady, son, because you're one with the son. Like, is there anything that God the Father loves more than Jesus? Nope. And you're one with him. The Lord's presence is even hidden in these cities. Let me show you. I'm going to finish. I promise I'll finish in a second. I know we had a baptism and a membership, and now it's gosh. But I've got to show you this. It's just it's so glorious. How many cities were there? Verse 21 to 28. Look, it's very strange because there's two lists. Very inefficient way of numbering cities. There's a list of 12 and a list of 14. And both lists, they tell you how many cities are on the list. It's like, what a waste of time. Oh, hold on a second. Maybe the numbers are significant. Ah, yes. 12? Yeah. 12 cities. Verse 24. 12 tribes of Israel. It's like all of Israel found here. All that it means to be Israelite found here. 14. Why 14? Well, 14 is twice 7. 7, six days of creation, one day of rest. This is like a renewed and newly resting, doubly newly created Israel. Benjamin, my beloved son. All of my people, all of my blessings, newly created in this little patch of land. 12, 14, 26. Who's in my Ten Commandments class? How many words in the sixth through tenth commandment? 26, why? Very good. It's the numerical value of the Hebrew word for Yahweh, Lord the covenant name of God, the God who keeps covenant with his people. 
And we know that number is significant because it's significant elsewhere. Ten Commandments. The Lord is mentioned explicitly in the first five and he's completely absent from the second five. You think, oh, maybe the second five have got nothing to do with the Lord. Oh, yes, they have. He's hidden. You see, 26, Yahweh. If you read the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The Psalm is broken up into two parallel panels with a little phrase in the middle. Each panel has 26 words in it. Yahweh, Yahweh. What's in the middle? For you are with me. Oh, all you need to know, isn't it? 26. You are with me. This little dry and dusty patch of earth, and especially in one city, because look, it hasn't even received its name yet. Verse 28, Zila Hayelef Jebus. And a later editor probably has to come along and tell us that that's Jerusalem. Because it's at the moment it's an it's an alien city still fortified inhabited by the Jebusites hence it's called Jebus but one day one day this will be the heart of the life of the people of God where the Lord chooses to make his dwelling place where tribes from all over Israel and people from all over the world come and find the Lord for he is with us here in this dry and dusty patch of land so I'd like you to think again if you wouldn't mind please about whatever it was whatever it was that came to your mind when I asked you to think, what is it that you struggle to be content about? And the Lord is with you there. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, teach us that contentment which sees your mighty and glorious hand present with us, even when, so to speak, the lights are switched out teach us to trust you and to receive with joy and gratitude all that you've given us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.